Greetings, fellow explorers, and welcome to the fifth episode of Geekoscopy 101. It's the podcast show that explores the nexus between science, story, wonder, and philosophy. With me, your host, Dr. Yanis Kisten. And today, we are pondering the depths of history and the importance of conservation with none other than the lo-fi historian himself, Garrett Erickson. How are you doing, Garrett? Ah, good in yourself. I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to to chat to you tonight. Mm. Uh, we met uh, through your conservation efforts uh, with conservation streamers on Twitch. Yeah. Um, and I've been keen to, to chat to you about it, being also a man of, uh, of a- academics, uh, delving into video games and streaming and, and online media and stuff like that. So speaking mm. about that, tell us a bit about who you are in this moment and what you do. Ah, okay. Well, um, so yeah, as mentioned, uh, my handle is Lo-Fi Historian. Um, it's, uh, uh, my actual name is Garrett Erickson. Uh, I'm currently completing my PhD in history. Um, I mostly focus on the Cold War in Africa, so that period. Um, and in particular, I focus on the South African border war um, and, uh, and the veterans thereof. I'm very interested in veteran experiences, uh, but um, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Um, other than that, I'm also uh, someone who deals with animal conservation. I come from an animal conservation background. Uh, I've also grew up in South Africa, uh, but I've been lucky enough to travel to uh, several different countries around the world. I think my current count is 55. Um, so I'm I'm hoping one day to make it around. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I want I want to I want to travel to every single country in the world at least once. Um, and in that, I've also been to every single continent. Uh, including Antarctica, but excluding Australia. So Australia is big on my list to go to. Really? Um, you made it to Antarctica <laughs> before you got to Australia? How did yeah, you manage know, right? that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up on um, Antarctica? Sorry? How did you end up on Antarctica? Oh, so um, w- one thing my parents like to do a lot is to kind of um, chain travel. So if we're going to travel, we do it for about a month or two at a go and we link up things. So even though I've traveled a few times for research or just for my own enjoyment, uh, my family loves to do like nice family vacations. So I've been lucky enough that because they like in doing that, we we sometimes get to see amazing places. And one of the places we went to was South America. We went to Brazil, Chile, um, Argentina and that. And then if you continue down uh, south uh, of South America, you can end up on the cusp of Antarctica and down into some of the islands and offshoots there. So we managed to go um, to the tip and the edge of Antarctica, as well as um, part of the mainland and then back up. Um, and obviously it is protected waters, um, especially these days. So it's very, very rare now to actually be able to go. You do have to book either through cruise ships or you have to be part of a research vessel. You can't just go there by yourself anymore. I can imagine. Yeah, it's it's not mm-hmm. for everybody. No, exactly. Um, but it's beautiful. I think it's one of my favorite places in the world. And it just so happens that I have a professional interest in it as well. Besides my main research interests, I have a slew of side interests, um, including African paleontology and archaeology and that. But one thing I'm very interested in is the potential future um, geopolitical situation of Antarctica, because mm-hmm. I'm think I'm thinking ahead as as global warming is happening that um, new areas are going to open up as ice starts to melt and as lands um, start to recede because of the rising mm-hmm. waters. 
So we're going to, I think, see a big interest in Antarctica becoming a potential new place to set up, depending on how the ice flows and such mm, go. So mm, mm, yeah. anyway, but that's a that's a separate story. Yeah, well, <laughs> Antarctica is, um, is one of the biggest deserts on the planet. There's nothing really yeah. happening. Yeah, um, yet, uh, uh, but I'm I'm sure yeah. people find something interesting yeah. there. <laughs> All you have to do is is drill oil there, and then it's over. Mm. Somebody's gonna somebody's gonna take it. Exactly. Uh, so, how did your love for then history come about, and what's your PhD work about? <laughs> so, so that's actually a, quite a funny uh, tale in and of itself. Um, I didn't start off uh, to become a historian. Um, I've always been interested in stories, though. So, when I left school, I wanted to make documentaries. So I actually went to film school. Um, and while I was in film school, I was, I was really enjoying it. However, they were very set on teaching us um, uh, to, to be advertisers first and filmmakers second. You know, there was kind of like they said, you know, you can go and do your documentaries, but how are you going to make your bread and butter money is through advertisements. And I just was not about that life. I can't stand mm. adverts. And I just said, no, I want to find a different way to do this. Mm. So I decided to go study journalism at Rhodes University. Um, so I had to do a bridging course. So I spent a year doing psychology and English studies, um, through UNISA then, um, which is the university of South Africa. For those who don't know, it's a correspondence university. Then through that, I got into Rhodes university. Uh, then I spent a year doing journalism, English. Uh, I picked up history and there was another subject, which I can't recall. Uh, oh, classic civilization studies. So I had a, yeah. a few interesting subjects. And then I decided eventually actually to drop journalism because as much as I was enjoying it, I found that they were offering a course, they were structuring it in such a way that by my fourth year, chances are I wouldn't have been able to actually do this course I wanted to, i.e. I wanted to do documentaries. And it sounded like that wasn't going to happen. So mm. I decided, you know, at that point, kind of <laughs> everything was thrown up in there. I'm like, oh, what can I do now? So um, I got into my second year and I decided to continue. I picked up psychology again. I continued with history because it was always a fun side subject. And I carried on with classic civilization studies. And I thought now's a perfect time to go back to psychology, which I also enjoyed. And I started thinking maybe I'll go into criminology. Um, I enjoy you know, working with people who have um, trauma. And I thought maybe there's a way I can um, help um, restructure the criminal system, et cetera. Uh, the criminal justice system. Um, and uh, <laughs> in my third year, I read a book by, um, and I've forgotten her name, unfortunately, but she's a well-known South African author, also a criminologist and studies serial killers in particular. And um, she wrote a book about her experiences. And the one chapter was detailing how she found a victim. They opened a barrel and inside the victim had been stuck in this barrel for months in the hot sun and had just liquefied and putrefied. Oh, and I was just like, mm, <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. You're Moving on. <laughs> straight up noped out of there. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so about third year, I had history and psychology. History had just crept up and just become this really interesting thing. And, and now I was, I was debating dropping psychology. And, and then uh, at that point, we started a new, a new module in history about the South African border war. And I was like, what's this? I've never heard about this. You know, and I was fairly familiar with South African history. I knew about apartheid. But at this point, I didn't know that South Africa had been involved in a war. I knew about the Anglo-Boer War, the Anglo-Zulu War, even World War I, World War II. But here was a war that had happened in Angola and South Africa and Namibia. Sorry, it involved South Africa, but it happened at the edge of Namibia and in Angola. 
um, during the time when my parents were alive, you know, like, uh, sorry, my parents are still alive just to confirm, <laughs> but during the time when my parents were, were young, you know, and it was yeah. uh, like the, the seventies, sixties, eighties, that, that area. And I, I realized I knew nothing about this and, hmm. and it just blew my mind. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that there are people walking around now who have been in this like 30 plus year long conflict who, who, um, have not had their stories told, you know, like there were very, very few books about it. And there was like one or two courses. It was very little information about it. Mm. And I started realizing I can marry my study of PTSD from psychology and my interest in these, now these war veterans and the stories into history. Uh, because I had to start picking it, what, it, what I was going to do for honors, either psychology or history. And I decided to go with history. And, and my professor at the time as well was very um, interested in that angle that I was, I was going for. So I decided, no, I'm going to be a historian. So I went into honors and I did history. Uh, and I started focusing on war veterans and, and their experiences and, um, uh, you know, uh, certain battles and such. And while I was doing this, I decided, hang on, here's a perfect opportunity to do a documentary. <laughs> so I recorded several veterans. Um, I made a documentary about their experiences. And mm. then I wrote a thesis component about uh, this experience, as well as using the, um, the video as a primary source, basically. Um, so <laughs> I will say this, it, it was a very interesting experience. I really enjoyed it. I think I got amazing information out of it, uh, information that hadn't been captured in that way before. Hmm. This was before there were any big, uh, you know, there were several documentaries uh, about the border war, but usually it happened during it or just after there hadn't been one up until this point that really kind of covered it. Not, not, you know, um, not in the way I was doing it. And, um, it was just a student project. It was only a half an hour long. So it's, and it's not even, I don't even have it on YouTube anymore because the DMCA's came around and took down <laughs> all my music and everything. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I didn't really get the best marks out of it because my very traditional history department didn't know how to market. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but they appreciated the effort. Yeah, um, yeah. However, what came out of that was uh, about a, about six months later, um, I got an invitation from Edinburgh University to come and do a master's course at their African Studies Department, That's doing, so cool. again, yeah. um, a video documentary. Hmm. Uh, basically, they were running a pilot project where they wanted to see if people can do master's theses um, with a video component, exactly what I had done. Um, so I came up there and my, um, my supervisor was South African as well. Mm -hmm. She was very big into African media studies and combined with, uh, so with her and another supervisor that was there, I created again, another documentary, uh, with a written component. And I got my master's in political science through that. Um, I did very well, got a distinction for it. So there was a big di mm -hmm. difference in, uh, in reception. Um, and that documentary is currently on YouTube. Um, it's called stories, shadows, and dust. If anyone wants to look it up. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I'm still, I'm, you know, it, again, it's a student project from back in 2011. So it's, Oof. it's not the greatest quality, but it's almost it is a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I do want crazy. to do a, I do want to do a follow up one day with like better quality and everything, but that's much later. I have several ideas for documentaries I want to do in Angola. Uh, but that will be, you know, after I finish the PhD and all the rest of it. Yeah. But yeah, so that's my that's my journey uh, to becoming a fully a fully fledged historian. And then when I came back from Edinburgh um, in 2013, I uh, then I worked for a year at my family's wildlife park, the Kangal Wildlife Ranch, 
Um, and then I decided I want to do a PhD and that was in 2014. And here I am, <laughs> you know, yeah, like seven yeah, years yeah. later. <laughs> That's a pretty cool story. You, you've been, I would say you'd have a lot of life experience. Uh, going yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> not only through academia, but just like going around and, and traveling and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so then what is your PhD work about? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, I focus mostly on war veterans. So for my honors, uh, my honors thesis, I, I focused on, uh, the battle of Quito Quanaval, which was the most, which is one of the most contentious battles of the South African border war. Um, and, uh, I, I wanted to deal mostly with how the veterans recall their experiences there for my master's thesis. I took what I'd learned from there. I interviewed a, a couple of more people, spliced that footage with the old footage. And I focused then on how, um, how information is, is, uh, broadcasted from memories into like a diorama of a film medium. So it was very much almost like a film studies, psychology study, sociology, history study rolled into one with some, obviously mm. some African politics and things mm. thrown in there. So very much a mishmash. I'm very big on multidisciplinary studies. I don't believe in like oh, yeah. history, yeah. <laughs> politics. I mix everything yeah. if I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then I started thinking in 2013, because I was already, you know, considering doing a PhD. And I, I contacted my supervisor here at uh, Stellenbosch University, where I'm currently based. And I said, you know, I'm interested. Um, I, read this, I read this book by, and if I, I, I always mess up her surname, but I, I believe it's Amanda Logson. She's a South, sorry, she's a Australian uh, academic who focuses on Australian soldiers in World War I. And I think World War II, actually, as well. And uh, she did a, a big study on boredom in that era with Australian soldiers. And I started thinking, that's a good point. Like, you know, after my thesis and, and uh, a little bit later, more and more information started coming out about the South African border war. I mean, my, my bookshelf here, is, this is mostly border war books. And, and it's very big now. It's publishing a lot more. People are coming out and they're telling their stories more and more. And I started realizing that we always focus on the battles and the exciting bits, but what about when they're bored? What about when they're not fighting and they're sitting there and they're reading their letters from their loved ones and they're dealing with the trauma of shooting someone and they're getting drunk and they're smoking weed and they're gambling and all that stuff that doesn't get recorded. What about that? And that started my journey. So long story short, <laughs> my thesis is on the recreational activities of South African Defense Force soldiers during the South African border war, um, effectively, and and the boredom and interactions that surround that. So I look at, um, I've got an entire chapter, and this is again where my psychology background came in. I did a whole chapter on the psychosomatics and um, analyses of um, boredom as a as as a concept, and then mm. as a uh, in the military. And then I'm doing chapters on um, sports in the military, uh, religion, um, alternative entertainment, which is anything from drugs and gambling to uh, prostitution to a whole variety of things. Um, and yeah, so I'm just kind of I'm kind of going the whole spectrum. Uh, and then I, I was lucky enough to go with a, a group of veterans last year. I went to Angola with them, and we went on a ten day journey to one of the big battle sites um, in Angola, and. Um, it's called the Battle of Lomba River, and it was the largest tank battle on the African continent since World War II happened there. So these guys have been in that battle, many of them their first time returning to that site. And I traveled with them uh, to not only learn more about that site and the war in general, you know, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, 
but um, to also learn more about the stuff they talk about, what they did in between, you know, and they told so many different hilarious stories about, mm. you know, pranks that they pulled on each other and um, just different experiences. And they would, you know, talk about the sports they played, the friends they made, all this stuff. So it was a gold mine of information for me. So I'm, I'm kind of splicing yeah. all that together. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah. That mm. multidisciplinary work you would have to um, do, especially in, a, in an academic context. Mm. Um but I'm really interested in like, well, first my one one question about like history, like where, like how do you, like how do you split apart archaeology from history? Like where's where's the line? Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so that actually it's it's funny because archaeology and paleontology often get confused for each other. So paleontology yeah. is a study of dinosaurs and fossils, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. and archaeology is a study of human remains and human mm-hmm. items and such. Um, anthropology is a study of obviously human evolution, et cetera. So history um, is obviously more in touch with archaeology and history is more of a contextual base. So let's say, let's say um, uh, we discover, let's use something world known, like worldwide known, like um, King Arthur's table. Let's say, you know, um, something like that. We find King Arthur's resting place. So um, archaeologists will often have uh, fairly good historical knowledge of an area, if not excellent is- historical knowledge of an area. And they will go and they, they will assess the location. They have the expertise to physically dig up, extract, remove, and manage the artifacts that come out of it. Um, however, because they focus mostly on that, there's a wider historical context that they might not be aware of. So, for example, let's say it was found in Wessex, you know, in, in England. Um, I would then maybe as a scholar who's very familiar with Wessex, I could tell them, uh, okay, yeah, you, you know, you, you know, this particular area because of your archeological background. Let me tell you about the past 500 years, one way or another from where you found it. Here's all the archive records. Here's all the, um, you know, the documents we have. Here's all the tales from books. Here is poetry and, you know, um, uh, individual accounts. Here's even DNA studies that we have records of, etc. So a historian's job basically is um, storyteller and archivist. We provide context to the things that other people find. So, um, you know, if an archaeologist finds this bottle, right, a bottle like this, they'll know where it was made, when, how, etc. Um, I'll be able to provide the exact kind of history around it. Who would have likely drunk this? What was the economic circumstances around it? Um, who were the people who built the factory that made this? All that kind of context. So they will they will be at the center of the web. We will be all the connecting lines that get to it. Um, oh. There's a lot of there's a lot of interplay and inter. Um, uh, I suppose what's what, yeah interplay between mm. between the two areas, and often archaeologists will call historians in to help, and vice versa. So it really just depends on what's found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I suppose you guys act like a team. Yeah, um, to try and find the whole picture out that each of you can't do by yourselves. I actually, I just found a in my archive research, I found an archaeological document that was a report written by the South African Defence Force soldiers in the seventies up in northern Namibia about a area they found, and they brought in some archaeologists to study that area. Now, I, as a historian, want to know more about this because it might impact my research. So, I'm mm-hmm. reaching out to some archaeologists to interpret this data and see if it's you know worthwhile for my context. And then maybe by sending them this because it was classified until I requested it declassified, it's been classified as a report since the seventies. 
So that means that there are archaeologists that are currently in South Africa who have never seen this report. So it would be great to you know hear from them if it's anything interesting. That's pretty cool. Um, mm. I'm really digging the whole like you have to kind of work together with, the, with these other scientists to do that because you do get that a lot in biology as well. Um, yeah, I can imagine because yeah, it's also an interconnected science. You mm. know, if you're going from things like all the way from the genetic level to how animals behave, there's a wide spectrum of of what can go on. But speaking about animals, mm. um, you also have a love for conservation. Um, and with your yeah. parents also owning a, a wildlife <laughs> ranch. Um, yeah. So tell us a bit about, you know, that journey through time. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Kanga Wildlife Ranch is my family's endangered species. Um, I don't want to say it's a reservation. It's an endangered species breeding facility and conservation facility. The idea behind our facility is uh, first we have an education wing and we have a, a conservation wing. So the education wing is our tourism element. So that's when people come in and they go on guided tours in our facility. We teach them everything we know. We show them all the animals, lots of interactability. And we also have ambassador animal programs where they can interact with animals. And I'll get to that a bit later. Um, and then we have our conservation side, which is our primary focus, obviously. And that is when we take um, animal bloodlines that maybe are thinning out or are struggling, for example, like the African cheetah, and we will breed stronger bloodlines, uh, working together with international stud books and, and geneticists to ensure that populations are stronger uh, around the world. We will send these stronger bloodlines as they're bred um, to other parts of the world to increase those bloodlines. We don't do live releases ourselves, but we send off cheetahs to facilities that do do that. Um, given where we are, we don't have space to, um, to live release. Uh, but the Kanga Wildlife Ranch itself, um, my, it, it didn't actually start as a wildlife ranch. It started off as a crocodile farm. And my parents uh, purchased it in 1986, uh, shortly after I was born, actually. And um, over about 30 years now, I think we've just celebrated, I think, our, our 33rd or 34th anniversary of the wildlife mm -hmm. ranch. And um, we, uh, we convert, they converted it into a world-class world conservation facility. Um, we are one of only, I think it's two or three facilities on the whole African continent that are both um, accredited by the by PAYSAB, which is the Pan-Africa Zoological Association of Botanical Gardens, and also members of the World Association of Zoological, uh, sorry, Zoos and Aquarium. Um, so we, you know, we wear that with pride. We we're definitely um, up there, and. Um, so for me, as a, as a child growing up, obviously, I grew up in the small town of Otsurung. I just, sorry, to, for those listening, if you want to know how to spell it, it's C-A-N-G-O. So you can find us online, www.cango.co.za, or you can look us up on Facebook, Kango Wildlife Ranch. And sorry, just side fact, a bit of historical knowledge here. Kango is the Khoisan word for place of water. Uh, because Otsun itself, though a, a semi-arid desert region, has big rivers and lots of underground water and lots of cave systems. So when the settlers arrived and they you know, asked the Khoisan, uh, what is this place called? They said Kango, which means place of water. Um, so it's kind of in that area, there's lots of places that have that name. And we obviously are um, a bigger one that does. Um, anyway, so I grew up there, uh, grew up working with animals in wildlife conservation. Um, and, and many people do ask, you know, uh, 
why haven't I gone into animal conservation instead of history? Um, so and I have two answers to that. The first is that um, I do actually, uh, on one of my major side interests is uh, um, ecological history. So even though in Angola, for example, I'm wanting to do more work there with the war veterans and about war, I'm also very interested in the ecological impact of uh, warfare in an area, what it does to the surrounding ecology and animals, etc. So I'm marrying those kind of two things as well. And no matter where I go, I'll always be involved in the Kanga Wildlife Ranch, even if I'm busy doing my own thing. Um, so... Uh, the other answer is that I've worked at the Kanga Wildlife Ranch my whole life. The moment I could stand up, I was there. In fact, there are photos, and if anyone sees them on my Facebook or my, if you go to my stream, actually, it's in my in my about panel. But there's a photo of me with a baby cheetah. Um, you know, my my first mm-hmm. friend was a cheetah called Alpha and a baboon called Stinky. My first two friends. Um, so I was involved in animals from a super early age, and I worked there until I left school uh, at the age of 18. And in between my studies, whenever I wasn't formally at a university, I was working at the Wildlife Ranch. So I've worked there the equivalent of about 20, 22 years. And I think many people, I know it's maybe the previous generation, it's frowned upon, but our modern generation, we're very much like, if you spend 10 or so years in a place, you usually end up moving on somewhere if you haven't you know, uh, hmm. risen in the ranks. And obviously, I, I had risen in the ranks, but I wanted to do something else. And I think that my parents had instilled such a love of knowledge in me from all our travels that I needed to learn more. I wanted mm-hmm. to know more. Mm-hmm. And I found that history was the perfect avenue for me to do that. I could study anything I wanted through history. I wanted to know more about medical history, could do that. Um, astrophysics could do that. Um, animal conservation could do that. Whatever I wanted to, history had it all for me as far as I'm concerned. So my lust for knowledge took me, uh, took me in this direction. Um, but I'll always be involved in animal conservation. And uh, the Wildlife Ranch um, is uh, still there. We've been having our troubles in lockdown, which is why we had the Conservation Streamers Initiative, which is where we're trying to raise funds to keep our animals fed and keep our staff paid. Um, so we have over 4,000 individual animals, uh, about 90 species, and 140 staff. Um, at our facility. Uh, so we were raising funds these past few months. And one of the ways I could contribute was through um, streaming. So we contacted uh, a bunch of streamers, a big South African contingent came through, which was wonderful, as well as several international streamers as well. And they all came forward and they we just spent an entire weekend raising funds. In one weekend, we raised over 100,000 Rand, which was absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, so, and then after that, I kind of got a taste for streaming and uh, <laughs> ended up getting involved myself and mm-hmm. seeing I could use it as a platform to not only still talk about the Kanga Wildlife Ranch, but also, um, uh, you know, talk about animal conservation and other things that are important mm-hmm. to me. And of course, play games. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think now with, you know, gaming and video games becoming so diverse, it will be easy for you to get your fix, whether it be history or you know animals, mm, true. Um, as you as you play. So I, I I don't think I don't necessarily think that streaming is going to be you know apart from those mm-hmm. type of things. I think it's it's pretty inclusive, and I, I think you realize that as well. That's why you decided to you know venture a bit f- further into it. Oh, definitely. Um, so you know, talking about. Um, you know, the wildlife rush. Uh, 
What are some like the most like difficult things that you and family have had to endure over the years uh, when it comes to not only your farm but conservation in general when it comes mm. to animals? Well, uh, putting the lockdown aside, because obviously that's a major blow to us. We are a tourism-based facility. We don't receive any payment from the government whatsoever, fully privately funded. So uh, putting that aside, um, I would say a lot of the other difficulties we've had, um, many zoological facilities face public backlash um, in terms of, I think, a lot of ignorance from people. And I I think especially... Like zoos in general, and we're not actually a zoo. So we sometimes call ourselves a zoo because uh, we're, we we kind of fall in between. We're we're a mix between um, an open space conservation facility and a zoo. We we don't have the traditional zoo elements. We don't have traditional park elements. So that's why we kind of call ourselves a wildlife ranch. But we're a bit of a mix. So. Um, one thing that we do do, which is fairly controversial these days, is animal encounters where people can come and touch animals. And I can understand the controversy because there are many places that abuse their animals into this lifestyle. They drug them or they beat them in training or anything along those lines, or they force the poor animal into it. And people unwittingly, or maybe just out of greed or ignorance or whatever, they'll just go in and they'll touch these animals. And you think about places like the tiger temple, um, and and such, Hmm. um, so there definitely are places where it should be banned, and I think that more regulation should be implemented. However, I don't think it should be blanket banned, and that's where I think we're different. Our facility puts animals first at all times. So when people come in, uh, when, okay, so someone arrives at our facility and they want to uh, touch, a, for example, a cheetah or maybe a serval or a snake, anything along those lines, we... We have a whole protocol set up. So the first thing we do is obviously we um, we check the height of the visitor, we check their age, we check their general, you know, can they understand what we're saying? Um, are they able to follow mm-hmm. instructions? Uh, we assess everything. Uh, we make sure their hands are clean, all of that. We then send our trained keepers in to assess our animals. How are the animals feeling today? Do they look irritated? Are they tired? Do they not want to be around people? And it's very easy to tell because cheetahs purr. Cheetahs are the only big cats that purr. So they're easy to tell. If they don't want to be around people, they'll let you know. They just won't purr or they'll move away or they'll hiss, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we check and we send our people in who work with these animals daily and know their behavior. Um, if the if the cheetah is fine, we say, okay, we'll bring the person in and the encounter will begin. If it's apparent the cheetah is not fine, we say, sorry, uh, no encounter today. Animal's not in the mood. And that's, I think, already just a key difference. Another key difference is when we bring people in, now we give them a safety briefing first. We give them a full safety briefing first. They're not allowed to touch the animal in certain places. They're not allowed to move quickly. They're not allowed to approach it from a space that will make it uncomfortable. Nothing. We've got animal behaviorists and everything. We fully research exactly how you can interact with an animal for its maximum comfort. Um, And even if during the encounter, while you're busy touching the animal, it decides it doesn't want to be there anymore, Sorry, end of encounter. If you want to refund, that's fine. The animal's first. But the whole point of our encounter relationship is to build that relationship, is to Mm. make people realize that this animal is more than something that you can just see from a distance or on your TV. It's a living, breathing thing, and it needs our help because we have damaged the world. We have damaged their ecology. You need to create this connection so you can understand it. You know, in the same way that humans, we're very tactile. We need to understand. We need to touch. We need to feel. 
And this is a great way to do that. So when you have a lemur sitting on your shoulder and you're seeing it and you're encountering it, or you're looking into the eyes of a cheetah, it's a whole different experience to just seeing it from a distance. Um, and you, and, and we've, we've felt that this has actually worked. We've had multiple people come back to us, um, over the years saying things like, you know, you've changed the way I see things. Uh, you know, I'm going to do my bit to help. Um, my son wants to grow up to be a zoologist, all this stuff. Mm. Um, so we think we we've done right. And as far as we're concerned, if it's going to be done right, we're doing it right. And I know that sounds arrogant, but I think we've proven ourselves over the years, especially considering we've had like no, uh, no serious injuries or anything like that. So, and, and you, you hear about that all the time in South Africa, people walking with lions or anything like that. I, I, I don't endorse, um, walking with lions. I don't endorse that one guy. What's his name? The lion whisperer. I think he's, he's setting a really bad precedent, all those, those kind of places, but there are places that do do it well. And I think that if we adopt a more wholesome model, um, that the government could then maybe enforce, that would be better but instead yeah. of a complete blanket ban. But yeah. I'm, I, unfortunately, we sometimes get a lot of flack from the public as a result. But yeah. we talk to them, we try and educate them, and we invite them to come and see what we do. And usually, if they do come and see what we do, they change their minds. And in some cases, just by talking to them online, we also change their minds. Um, so, and I mean, so that's that's the one difficulty. Another difficulty, uh, another major difficulty is, is operational things. Like, um, food costs, um, uh, weather, um, storms, uh, floods, um, animal diseases, um, uh, especially cheetahs. They're prone to getting kidney disease and such, um, from, or kidney failure from their genetics. Um, oh, what else? Uh, um, you know, breeding mishaps. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, but, but we've learned over the years how to, how to deal with that, um, for the most part. So we we run fairly smoothly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can imagine after you know Tiger King showed on Netflix, you guys might have got even a bigger flood um, um, of those people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you'd actually be surprised. We we haven't really had much negativity from uh, places like um, Tiger King, I suppose, because mm. it coincided with lockdown. So, mm. um, but um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't really want yeah. people arriving and going. Oh, I want this place to be. You know, I want this to be another Tiger King because <laughs> I, I, I quite frankly, you know, find yeah. that the the, the, play, the facilities featured in Tiger King have received like a, something like seven hundred percent increase in visitors since the Netflix yeah. documentary, <laughs> which I think is disgusting. Yeah. But you know, yeah. what do yeah. I know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's 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 an important distinction. You know, me over the years, um, obviously, I, I liked places like. Um, you know, zoos and SeaWorld and, and that when mm -hmm. I was a kid, because, you know, it's mm -hmm. all wondrous and fun. Of course. And, and you're a kid, you uh, don't know any better. <laughs> yeah. And then over the years, you're like, okay, are we actually like, you know, subjugating these animals for entertainment? Mm -hmm. You know, where the ethics in that? Yeah. Um, and then, then you start thinking that way. Okay. Like, no, then we need to keep no animals. And then, then you start thinking about it, um, even further than you realize, okay, some animals, once you keep them in captivity, you can't just put them back and yeah. expect them to survive. And, you know, some yeah. animals, um, that are, uh, you know, like maimed in some way that would not survive. Mm. Um, in the wild, you know, where are they going to go? If you're going to, if you're going to, you know, throw them out, then they're going to get eaten the next day, you know? So yeah, some of the, I mean, we, we take in, for example, um, injured animals as well. Like we have a Cape vulture yeah. um, exhibit where we take in uh, vultures yeah. that have injured themselves, either been shot at or they've flown into power lines, various things like that. So 
Yeah, and I think you guys are doing with the cheetahs. You know, it, it's a problem. You know that there's not a lot of them around. So mm-hmm. having you know this this, this genetic stock um, that you can try and replenish later, you know, that's important because we went and yeah. you know we we as humans destroyed a lot of the environment. You know, so we the the ways we are trying to you know fix that, and some of that is you know, having breeding programs. I think um, I think the, like the problem is. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the problem mm. is that um, that that it's not black and white. We can't it's just say not, all zoos or yeah. no zoos. It's very gray. Yeah, it's gray. And like anything yeah. that we've been involved in, we've made it messy and complicated. So yeah. it's not as simple as just end zoos and let let nature take its course yeah. because yeah. it doesn't work like that. It's, no. it, and, you know, people ask us, why can't we just release our cheetahs into the wild? And we say there is no wild to release them into. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. there are there – are, everywhere is an enclosure now. Um, we could do Kruger Park, but they've got very – particular population densities there. You can't just mess with that. Um, you, we can't just release them where farmers are either because farmers sometimes see them as nuisances and will kill them we'll thinking them. that they kill their yeah. livestock. So it's not a simple, that's just cheetah. There's so many other animals that yeah. have similar issues yeah. and you yeah. know, there's deforestation, there's tons of things. Mm. So we can go on forever about mm. that. But point is, I point is, I think there's a very strong case for zoos and conservation facilities if they're done right. Yeah, in a certain context, you know, that yeah. is more helpful than just entertainment. But exactly. yeah, but when you have to think about it, okay, where's the money going to come from? And yeah. I think that's why, you know, it it kind of tumbles into this thing where um, the entertainment value takes more precedence over. And that's the actual problem yeah. is that, you know. It is. Okay. It is. And then if yeah. you lose sight and make the entertainment aspect uh, the most important aspect, then, you know. That being said, it's, it's, it's you know, when I, I visited SeaWorld when I was younger, I was lucky enough to. And I, I, I got a stuffed toy because I used to love Flipper. Uh, Flipper the Dolphin was my hero when I was a kid. And I got two stuffed toys when I was there. I got one of Flipper the Dolphin and one of an orca. Um, and I, I had those stuffed toys with me until I was like 15 and they got destroyed by the dog. But I remember seeing those animals and I was so taken by them that I had to have these things. And I've, you know, ever, I've carried them in my heart ever since, so to speak. And I can only think that similar people have, you know, other people have similar experiences, but it, at the same time, had I known that those animals probably aren't happy, they might be very depressed in those tanks. Mm. Mm. I would have thought differently about it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that, that certain, even if it's important to have people have that connection, I don't think it's right to, for example, sacrifice a pot of dolphins in a tiny tank for our entertainment, just so that we can create a connection so that we stop destroying the world. Um, I think that certain animals can do well in captivity and if they can they're, and, and they're also endangered, then if you could give them a good quality of life, sure, uh, you know, we can go that route. But I think if they're naturally not inclined to captivity and never will be, yeah. I don't think that it's something we should look at really. So yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely a case by case basis thing. Very and, much so. And um, I, I agree with you. You can't just shut um, everything down. Uh, we mm. did a lot of damage to the environment, and a lot of it needs to be fixed. Um, but the thing is, we are still here. Like we can't just erase ourselves off the planet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and <laughs> I think that's uh, that's kind of the problem, you know, when it comes to these real like hardcore 
mm. um, activists, you know, like, yeah. um, they, uh, and you need those people cause they, they're the ones that start, you know, this, uh, and get the conserv- uh, the conversation going. Mm. Um, but sometimes it, it, you can, you can also get extremist on the one side where you, where you do not see that. Okay. There's, well, there's, there's things going on that uh, yeah. it's not that simple. We, we've, we've had that, unfortunately. We've had our fair share of activists. And in fact, we're, we had a, a poisoning incident back in, I think, 2003, where someone um, poisoned several of our cheetahs. They threw poison into our enclosure um, and killed about, I think, three or four cheetahs, including one I had personally hand-raised. Um, I still, get, I still get a bit sucks. emotional when I think about it. Yeah, um, no, that's ridiculous, man. Uh, we're pretty sure it was an activist who had been harassing us for a while about releasing our animals and refused... Mm to understand why and how we could not release them and instead decided that death through poisoning was a better alternative. Better. We never managed to catch that person. And as a re- yeah. But as a result of what happened, we got a CCTV system donated to us. So that was wonderful. We set mm. that up and we've never had an incident mm. since, but it was a hard lesson to learn. You know, Jeez, we just kind of assumed that people would be good, but apparently not. <sighs> bloody hell okay let's maybe yeah. just try to get onto more light-hearted <laughs> stuff it's going to yeah be. sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> no no it's interesting it's definitely a conversation that um, mm. i don't think happens often enough mm. uh, because especially in the kind of media world that we're living now the, the extreme type of things tend to get you know overinflated and get presented yeah. to the public but obviously what's actually happening in reality is more of like, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on in the center and not enough of that gets discussed. So mm-hmm. I'm glad to provide a platform for that type of thing. Uh, cause those discussions take time and it takes, you have to be able to present your argument in different ways so that people can see yeah. it from different perspectives. Um, which is very difficult, you know, in the short news cycles that you get that people, you know, consume. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to video gaming and live streaming. So once yeah. you you started, um, you know, uh, with with your efforts to to raise money, you decided, okay, this this might be an interesting thing to do. So um, why did you then continue, uh, you know, live streaming video games? And what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Uh, what's your experience? I mean, I've been a I've been a gamer since um, since I was old enough, I suppose, to to own a console. I think my I'm trying to remember now. I think um, I'm trying to remember if I had a Game Boy before I had a Sega. But I think what happened was that during, there was a point when my parents were traveling a lot for business, and I was their only child, so they took me with. Um, oh, sorry, I wasn't their only child at the time. No, no, I'm thinking much later. It was actually later. I was old enough to travel with them. My younger siblings weren't. So my siblings would stay behind and be looked after. I would go with my parents and they would give me a Game Boy to occupy myself. So that was, you know, I was hooked. Um, and I still remember even before that, I used to play on my mom's computer, I used to play DOS games, mm. all that. So I've been a gamer since day one. Um, wait, before you continue, what were you playing on DOS? Oh, uh, Teddy Bear Picnic, um, and then eventually things like uh, Prince of Persia, you Mm. know, um, all those other good stuff, uh, the good old DOS games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Prince of Persia, which would eventually evolve into Assassin's Creed. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I've I've always played. So then um, it's funny because even though I was such a big gamer, I I never really watched streams. I always thought, you know, I watched highlights and things, you know, the occasional hilarious thing, but I, I was like, if I'm going to play a game, I'd rather just play the game. I don't want to watch mm-hmm. someone else playing the game. Mm-hmm. So I never really got into streaming. And then uh, around the time when we, when we wanted to raise some funds, I remember a, f- a streaming friend of mine was raising funds for the SPCA. 
And I was like, wait a second, maybe we could do the same thing for our facility. And then, you know, got from there. And then I, my, the first time we did the conservation streamers, uh, event, I was just running support. So I just had to quickly learn how Twitch worked. I spent like a good few weeks on people's streams, learning how you could share emojis and how you can jump between streams, all that stuff. And then on the day, uh, uh, during the weekend of the event, I just was jumping between streams, sharing information, sharing widgets, all that stuff. Um, and then we were, uh, then after all that, I, I had such a blast and the community was so great that I decided that if we're going to do this again, I need to get into, not into stream, but I need to do a stream or two myself mm. on Twitch to figure out how it works so that I can be better support next time. So I just did like, I, did, I think I did two or three streams in the space of a week. And um, I enjoyed it so much. I had such a good time that I decided, no, I'm going to actually do this. I want to be a streamer. Mm. Um, not necessarily for a career just yet, but it's mm. definitely something fun I want to be doing. Um, and then I, I, I actually participated in our second uh, fundraiser and I did a 24-hour stream myself. And that was deadly. I don't recommend it to anyone. No. Um, <laughs> <I'm not laughs> maybe 12-hour blocks, yeah, but yeah. never, uh, you know. Uh, and, and I see a lot mm-hmm. of actually my, my streamer friends are doing 24 hours, so good luck to them. <laughs> but um, I, I just enjoyed the overall experience, the community, being able mm. to talk about the things I love, about history, animals, having people pop into the chat and share their life stories and talk to us about, you know, things and and it helps that my my um my partner in crime is uh, not only a mod in my channel but she's also a military historian like me so when we start talking military history we get this lovely flow going in the hmm. in the chat and it's just it's wonderful um she's also doing her phd actually so um okay. we've been we've been tag teaming on uh or, okay i lie she's actually been supporting me completely because i'm useless <laughs> at my phd so she's just been yeah, popping me up yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty cool um, yeah, so so I got into streaming as a result of that, and um, I I I was looking at, at growing it a lot now, but I decided to pull back a bit just to kind of focus on the PhD, and eventually mm. I'll grow it more. Mm. Uh, but I, I should mention that this is my first foray into this area. I actually have a, a an existing brand called Citizen Historian. That project or that brand is kind of on hiatus at the moment while I'm finishing the PhD because, again, it was taking mm. up too much of my time. Mm. But it is my more academic brand. So I've done consulting under it. I've written for magazines under it. I write mm. for uh, The Armorer in the UK, which is a military collector's magazine. Um, and I, I do a lot of um, uh, other cool, more academic work through them. Um, I wanted to start a YouTube channel eventually, which I will. I did a mm. podcast for a little while, which I, again, have paused. Um, so the lo-fi historian is more just the gaming side of that, which is something okay. I can do for fun. Hmm. I can keep the project in the back of my mind and in people's um, sites until I'm ready to push forward with both full steam. So yeah, 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 and it's still early days. You know, it's not. Uh, it's I think it's too early for you to be like, okay, I'm gonna go all in on this all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. A, <laughs> um, I find when it comes to content creation, like it's it's just slow and steady. Mm. adding things you know week by week month by month um, yeah until you pick it up unless you do something like you know what you did where you have a learned uh, academic history and then you can do something extremely professional like like citizen science and uh, mm. i'm a citizen historian um citizen historian yeah <laughs> yeah citizen science uh, my, my friends I mean, that's, have, that's not a bad brand name either though <laughs> well my, my my friends have a citizen science company it's called argonaut science uh, but they bought, ah. bought it just yet i think that's why in my brain citizen oh, yeah. science <laughs> went really, first yeah, yeah. um <laughs> yeah so so for sure uh so i get yeah, i actually 
in my brain, I didn't uh, realize, okay, yeah, you have a citizen historian and then you got a lo-fi historian, which are two separate things. Um, but I, I do like, you know, the fact that, well, what I'm planning to do, and, and I think what you're kind of planning to do as well is like use our streams also as a platform for education, but in a fun way, you know, not, Definitely. like trying to teach why not teaching, not, yeah. not having, it's, it's, it's a way we can communicate knowledge but in a way that's not a classroom yes and i think that's kind of really important in this day and age where people are so used to um you know that quick hits of, of dopamine and like mm. short attention span type of thing yeah and you know sitting in the classroom and learning about things is not the most fun way um <laughs> to actually unless you're so passionate about it in the first place like i had this discussion with um uh, Francois Noda, super teacher, who's like a, he, he's a science, uh, education mm. academic. So he's, mm. uh, uh, he, he does science on how to teach science. Oh, it's, it, it's a mind of, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a, kind of a brain twister. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we both kind of came to this, you know, conclusion that it's, it's in this day and age, like actually school might be detrimental, you know, if you're trying to become like a proper functioning adult in modern society and in future society, because the world is so rapidly changing, mm. um, school might not be, you know, and the way knowledge is presented at school these days or in the past, um, it's not the optimal way and it is changing and it is getting better. Um, it, but obviously when it comes to large institutions, it takes a while and it takes yeah. a while for people I, to change. I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I used to lecture at Stellenbosch University. Mm -hmm. I was um, lecturing, I was doing a uh, war and, um, what was it? War and society course. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, like I, I love, I love teaching. I love public speaking. I love that whole thing. I love teaching history, especially. Mm -hmm. And I was very big on telling a story. That was how that was how I wanted to bring it across. So I didn't want them to memorize facts. I wanted them to like, okay, I, basically I told them, I said, so if you guys like a movie, let's take Lord of the Rings, right? You watch Lord of the Rings and you enjoy it so much that you learn the characters' names. But maybe you go further. You want to learn more about the characters. So you start looking up the lore on the character or you read the book it's based on, etc. And I, that's what I want to do here. I want to tell you a story and it's up to you to decide how much you like it, bearing in mind that in some cases you have to like it because there's a test coming up. <laughs> yeah. But but the idea is that I want yeah. I want to teach it in that way. And I even I used to I was the only historian I knew in the department. And in fact, I still don't think it happens. I would bring artifacts to um to the class. Now, granted, you know, you can't like if you're teaching, I don't know, the Hiroshima bombings, you know, you can't bring a you know bomb in with you. <laughs> but I would I was yeah. teaching I was teaching certain aspects of um military history and I brought in um you know an old uh, Zulu uh spear. I brought in a sword. I brought in various items. I brought in things that people could touch and see. I brought in a helmet. Things like that. And I, I actually, I brought, a, I brought a, a proper, you know, um, soldiers, uh, they call them style docker, you know, steel, um, steel helmet. And, and I got one of those students to come in. I said, here, put this on. And he put it on and he realized how heavy it was. And I said, okay, now run back and forth up and down the class 10 times as fast as you can with that on and don't drop it. And he was running and running and running. And afterwards I said, so how did that feel? And he's like, no, it was heavy. It was bobbing around. I'm like, okay, now imagine doing that, but also put on a 25 kilogram pack um, have, don't have eaten for like a day or two and run a good 15 kilometers while under fire uh, and with the sun going. 
Uh, and that's an idea of what these kind of people had to go through awareness. You know, that's teaching aids. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm lucky enough that I can do that with, with history. Uh, not everyone can do that. But, but I think we as, a, as educators, if I want to be so bold, mm -hmm. need to find new ways, as you've said, to, to educate people. And I, I think that traditional institutions like universities have their place. But I think sitting in a lecture hall and being droned at, especially by um, people from a previous generation who have a wealth of knowledge, but don't know how to impart it beyond, let me just pour information out onto you. Here's a poorly done slideshow and, you know, deal with it. it because mm -hmm. we, in fact, if you actually do the, if you read the history about how our education system has come about, it's rooted in um, turn of the century um, factory expansionism, um, mm. industrialization. Yeah. You put workers into space, fill them with stuff, shake them down the, in the line, push them out into society and yeah. rinse and repeat. Yeah. That way doesn't work. Our society is far more organic now. It's the same reason why we also have um, uh, interdisciplinary studies going on because we mm. need a more gray area mixing going on. Our universities need to evolve. Um, I'm, I'm actually thinking in some way that lockdown is kind of a silver lining in that way because now all these lecturers and universities have to get creative. They can no longer force people into study halls. You have to figure out ways to share information online and, mm. and different methods and all that. So but I also think a lot of the onus is up to students. They need to get more creative in the way that they engage with the information. Mm. They must mm. be passive learners. They can't just sit there and go, oh, the old man's talking again, blah, blah, blah. They need to take an interest and decide if they want to learn this or not and how they're going to learn it. Um, I, I, I mean, my biggest way of learning was to, even if I didn't enjoy the subject that much, I would try and learn about it from every angle I could. I would read the books. I would watch the documentaries. I would go to the museums, whatever it was and engaged in the information. And I would learn in some cases, you know what, even though I'm engaged, I don't actually like it that much, but I'll learn it for the exam. I, in other cases, I was like, wow, I love this. I want to learn more about it. And I would keep going. And so you got to be more active in your own mm -hmm. education, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. And it's, but it's difficult, I think, in, in this day and age. I think um, well, you probably can go back and listen to that podcast because we talked about it quite a bit. Uh, ah. It will be out this week, yeah. Um, but but I think it's also uh, a point of okay, how we present this stuff to the kids and mm. why, like, what are the outcomes and why things were set up in a certain way, and then you realize, okay, the way that school and university teach is for the kids to pass an exam, not necessarily yeah. for the kids to learn. And be engaged. I hate exams. Don't yeah. get me started. I hate yeah. them so much. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was our main point on that type of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. But speaking about you know facts and and things uh, you need to to know, uh, not necessarily for exams, but things that you just like to know. Uh, so what mm. are some of your favorite historical facts throughout history that not many people might know about? Um, well, I mean, there are so many, but I, there was, there was one in particular that I thought might be fun for this, um, show. And it's one of, it's one of my favorite historical facts just because it's absolutely hilarious. Mm. So it's, um, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about it because there's been stories recently being published about it. It crops up every few years. Um, it does the rounds, but at one point in the, I believe it was the nineties, um, Pepsi, the cola company owned a flotilla 
of warships and actually became, if I remember correctly, I think they were the, uh, the sixth or seventh uh, biggest uh, naval fleet at the time. Um, <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So what had happened was that... Um, the Soviet Union, after after it um, it kind of uh, started brokering deals with uh, the U.S. after World War II, mm. um, and even during the Cold War, they started brokering trade deals and all of that. And at one point, um, apparently, the um, envoy to to the U.S. from the Soviet Union um, were given Pepsi uh, as like a, a drink. And this is just after you know um, a lot of embargoes and things like that. So for them, it was a novelty. They tried it and they loved it so much that they started um, importing it into Russia and they started getting it, um, you know, sold there. And at the time, the Soviet Union, the way they paid for it to Pepsi was vodka. So they they gave vodka in exchange for Pepsi to, to Pepsi and Pepsi then, you know, repackaged and sold that vodka. But then towards the collapse of the Soviet Union in about 89, 90, they suddenly didn't have money to continue paying for Pepsi. But they wanted Pepsi. They're one of the biggest Pepsi drinkers in the world, if not the biggest. So, in exchange, they ran out of vodka. They couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, they couldn't pay anymore in that way. So they gave them. Uh, let's see, seventeen submarines, a cruiser, a frigate, <laughs> and a destroyer. Mm, bloody hell! <laughs> so there was Pepsi for the briefest of moments. Became one of the top navy uh, naval military forces in the world. In the world. <laughs> so. So, I, I mean, I find that incredible. And then they, they, they actually, and then people ask what happened afterwards. So, so Pepsi then took those ships and they didn't, you know, start a war or anything. Um, they sold them to a Swedish uh, scrap uh, company. Um, okay. And then they, they scrapped and repurposed those. But I just, I love like the functioning, idea. Like functioning, like military vehicle. Fully they just scrapped them. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I find that because, again, I focus on the Cold War. So, it's one of my mm. favorite facts just because of how absolutely crazy it is yeah, that that yeah. era the cold war era was it's, mad it's amazing and, and yeah. that to me just kind of is the cherry on top because 1990 is more yeah, or less when the cold yeah. war ended so that yeah. is just boom that yeah, yeah, that's everything yeah. about yeah. that era to me you could probably have like a whole podcast here just about the cold war like just by itself oh, it's oh such, dude there's so many such, already there, there are amazing, tons of yeah. cold war podcasts um i think i'd love to do maybe a podcast on the weirder aspects of the cold war things yeah. that people don't know about yeah. um i mean there's there's lots of like history has tons of very little interesting stories um there's you know if you go we go from pepsi and global war down to like an individual person um you know there's this uh there's this one story i know of um it's, it's been confirmed where it was a special forces operator it was in angola and he was uh he was um diving in a river um with a, with a group of other special forces um uh, men and they were trying to blow up a bridge and while they were swimming towards this bridge a crocodile came out of nowhere and grabbed the one guy uh right between the legs just grabbed him and started doing like a death roll in the water mm. and this special forces guy panicking obviously because he has a crocodile but also remembered his training i guess pulls out a knife and starts jabbing at the crocodile punching it and stabbing it and everything yeah. and eventually the crocodile lets it go but because they're in enemy territory um they've now been spotted so all the noise and the screaming they you know there's these angolan guards or cuban yeah. guards standing on this bridge seeing this commotion they start you know firing and the people get missed but I, I believe they did manage to blow up the bridge in the end uh, and the operator who got attacked yeah. by the crocodile survived but they got scattered as a result of that whole chaos. And I just, <laughs> again, it's another little weird story from yeah. kind of that era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's tons of like little interesting facts. There's a lot of things that people don't know about um, various historical figures. I mean, pick a person, you'll find something interesting and yeah, different about yeah, them. Yeah. Pick an aspect of history. Uh, and we're also learning new things all the time. That's what's great about history. It's actually always evolving. People often think that history is static, um, that you learn, for example, you learn something about, you know, the Queen of England or Queen Victoria from 1800s or whatever. Sorry, I might be, I don't know British history that well. <laughs> so I think Queen Victoria is actually 1900s. But point is that you can learn something brand new from uncovering a new document or finding, you know, a chiseled slab or whatever you might find. You'll, you'll, you'll find something new or even new information. Like I think the Dead Sea Scrolls, for the longest time, they were thought to be authentic. But just recently, some brand, brand new uh, technology has uncovered evidence that actually they're all very clever forgeries. Um, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. But not forgeries from our time. That's the interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, so yeah. They're kind of authentic in their age, but they're not authentic that they're actual biblical actual. documents. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, th there's kind of this saying that that I like um, is that history always tends to repeat itself. So, as a historian, do you actually find this to be somewhat true, or is it overblown? Yeah. So, this is, I guess, where my psychology training comes in a bit. Um, so, history does and doesn't repeat itself. The thing is that we are humans, and we've mm -hmm. evolved certain traits. We have certain behaviors. We adhere to certain patterns. Obviously, you as a you know um, a marine biologist will understand the behavior of animals, and they're fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. Humans, obviously, are a very complex social species, but we have very distinct archetypes, very distinct behaviors that have stayed with us throughout most of our development, and have somewhat changed in the past um, couple of hundred years due to our societal development and industry. Mm -hmm. But overall, the the overarching feel is still there. You know, we're very sub subjective to to uh, subjected to martial, uh, not martial, sorry, mob justice, mob think, all that kind of stuff. So there are definitely uh, patterns. Uh, one of my favorite ones I saw recently where people were freaking out about um, phones, about computer screens, and especially about 5G. So the big one, 5G, right, is the new evil. So someone shared this brilliant image I saw where it was a uh, taken from a newspaper from, I believe it was 1899, when electricity was first becoming widely used in street lamps. Mm. And the image was a, it was a cartoon of everyone dying from under these street lamps because mm. there was a genuine fear that, that electricity would yeah. kill you just by virtue of you being near it. Yeah. So that shows that 100 years ago or 120 years ago, the exact same fears were, pre were present. And not only that, in my, in my um, uh, psychology, uh, sorry, my, my boredom chapter of my uh, thesis, there's, I, I talk about um, graffiti. Um, and uh, we have graffiti dating back to pre-Roman times. We have graffiti dating back to Viking times. There's this, uh, here's another fun historical fact that also illustrates my point. Um, there's a cave, I believe it is in either the north of France or it's, um, or somewhere there about where, um, a, a group of archeologists, um, were doing excavation things. And then they saw up very high in the ceiling was a, uh, a collection of runes and they couldn't reach it without like special equipment and all of that. So it took them like a month to eventually get up there safely. You know, a, a person could potentially scale it, but they had to do it safely. So they finally get up there. And they, they, they take these runes and they translate them. And all it says is, Olaf was here. It's very high. 
<laughs> so here's an ancient viking rune from yeah. like you know the 1100s um just a guy just like you know i was here and i mean yeah. you see tons of like we have kilroy was here in world war ii so yeah you know what history i'm just talking about like incidents like that but if we just look at things like um uh, empires rising and falling uh, a big one is so the Easter Island uh, civilization, as well as Great Zimbabwe, are two very good examples, and Stonehenge are two very, three very good examples of how civilizations um, used all the available forest and landscape in the area for their growth of their civilization and promptly collapsed because they mm-hmm. overused it. Uh, Easter Island cut down all the trees. Great Zimbabwe did the same with the forest and over uh, tilled the, the land. Um, I think the I think there was evidence that parts of the uh, pre-Mayan civilization or pre-Incan civilization did the same thing. The people of Stonehenge did the same thing. So uh, we are now seeing the same thing. We have again, as a global society now, collapsed our ecology and our resource base, and we're reaping the rewards of that, which is collapse effectively. Hmm. So in that regard, we have done the exact same thing that almost every civilization has done up until this point just now on a global scale. So yeah, we've repeated ourselves over and over. And you know what? I'm, I'm thinking that we're still going to survive this. We're a very tenacious species. And if we get out there into, into the wider universe and we start colonizing places like Mars and, and, um, asteroid belts and all of that, there's definitely going to be aspects of our, of our ecology that's going to go with it. Our behavior will definitely evolve new traits on these new planets and in these new environments. But I think that um, it's not unlikely that we'll have this kind of bell curve of growth and collapse continuously, depending on what happens. I think that's just the nature of our species. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We just need to find a way to do it that's ecologically friendly, I believe. And maybe, maybe by finding that way of making it ecologically friendly, there won't be a collapse. Instead, we'll reach homeostasis. One can only hope. Indeed. I, I have hope because um, I, I kind of back humanity that we're smart enough, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get out of this hole that we put ourselves mm-hmm. into uh, when it comes to our ecology. Um, because the thing is, like, we were smart enough to put ourselves there in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, it's just, I think it's going to take some ingenuity. It's going to take mm. some way of getting us all to work together. That's the actual problem. Mm. I agree. Um, getting everybody to work towards a common goal, especially mm. because of, you know, all the political rhetoric that goes around that kind of tends to push people yeah. apart. I think that's one of our great, downfalls as a civilization i think um i think right now because we're in a situation where for the first time ever we have a global information network and we are not beholden to the authority figures for our information anymore so we're seeing a big shift in politics and in government and in the way people want to be governed um, and again, mm. okay, that's part of the pattern, you know, including like French revolution or that where mm. the people rise up and, yeah. but whenever the people have risen up and overthrown, someone else has just come and put themselves on top for the first time. We're now self-aware of it. We can see it. We're now discussing, you know, peasants over here are discussing with peasants over there in real time and saying, Hey, do you realize the King is doing this? Oh, wow. You're really, yeah, he's doing that. And remember that last group of peasants that overthrew, they also had a King do the same thing. You know, we're Mm. for the first time we have power to, to reconcile what has happened in the past with what's happening now and what might happen in the future. We as lay people have access to experts and politicians in a way that's unprecedented. So the, mm. the existing structures that we've had for the past few hundred years of one person at the top and all the trickle down that comes from it, 
is starting to unravel because it cannot it cannot work in a society that values egalitarian um, knowledge and rights. Mm. So we're going to be seeing a big change. We're in a revolution of epic proportions that is very slowly coming forward. Mm. Mm. Yeah, speaking of uh, French Revolution, it reminds me of uh, Assassin's Creed uh, Unity. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, being a historian, what are some of your favorite video games that kind of highlight uh, historical knowledge and, and hmm. facts? Well, I mean, there are a lot of um, games. I mean, most historical games out there obviously focus on um, on battle, you know, yeah, action, yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah. and I mean, I'm I'm no I'm no saint. I love myself some of those kind of games. So you know, I'll oh. play I'll play Battlefield. I'll play Call of Duty, um, that mm. kind of thing. But we're seeing now a really, really interesting uh, change in many of these games. So I think, personally for me, the original Assassin's Creed, I think, is my favorite historical game. Um, even though all the, histor- all the Assassin's Creed games obviously pay f- play fairly loose with uh, history. And of course, mm. I mean, they have to. They kind of have alien artifacts and yeah. going in time through your DNA. <laughs> all that yeah, crap. yeah, yeah. But... In terms of historical accuracy for the time period, um, excluding the story elements, um, I think Assassin's Creed is just one of the most incredible uh, achievements in that regard. Um, They've done very well in a lot of their other games, and I absolutely love the new uh, two Assassin's Creed games where they give you that tour of Egypt and tour of of ancient Greece. Love it. I will say... I will say that I was a bit annoyed to find out a while ago that Ubisoft was censoring um, Grecian statues that had penises and things like that, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. I think there was an outcry and they've uncensored it. I'm not 100% sure. But I think if you're going to go far enough to show art and history, you got to show it as it is. You can't, you know, pull away from it. But that's a whole separate discussion. But I, I love it. For, I love them for doing that because Assassin's Creed has always been very kind of uh, historically orientated, which is great. Um, and then of course, you know, again, like the battlefield to call of duties, uh, there's games like a plague's tale or plague tale, um, which is wonderful story-based game. Um, Sorry. A plague tale innocence. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Um, you got Rome total war, um, company of heroes. Um, we're seeing something very interesting. This land is my land, which is also now, because most of the time we see a very kind of white Eurocentric narrative. Um, this land is my land. Unfortunately, the game seems to be suffering from lack of um, dev input to grow it. But the concept was very fascinating. And the idea was that you were a Apache warrior who was fighting uh, colonial settlers um, who were coming into your land. It's like third person. So, you know, you would see, it was almost Assassin's Creed, but you're now an Apache warrior attacking white settlers. So we're seeing a change in narrative as well from a lot of these things. Um, we're seeing a lot of VR stuff. Um, Dawn of Art is, is one of my favorites. It's just an experience, but you're inside a, a cave in, in France that has that big hand that's you know um, painted onto the wall um, from like uh, 130,000 years ago or something. Um, or maybe more, I think, actually. Uh, so a lot of VR experiences and history. Uh, there's another game that came out last year uh, called 1111 Memories Retold which was about the end of uh, World War II. Um, another one which is fascinating, which I want to buy, is Tank Mechanic Simulator. So you take old World War II tanks and things, you can take them apart and put them back together. And I, I, I love old tanks. There's actually a couple of books I need to purchase mm-hmm. at the moment. I, I, you know, and I was lucky in Angola to go, I got to climb inside old Russian um, tanks and, and such uh, that were sitting out on the battlefield mm-hmm. for like 30 plus years. So it was fascinating for me. But... 
Yeah, so we're seeing we're seeing some wonderful games out there. I would say if see, I don't want to recommend any games that are historical per se because it depends on your interest. Mm. If you like World War II, then you know Company of Heroes and uh, early Call of Duty games are probably your best bet. Um, if you like, oh, even Battlefield One actually, I played it a while ago and um, I like I liked the historical lead up cool. it has. Yeah, very very good, very good. So that is one thing. Um, and uh, so it depends on your interest. If you like Rome, then Rome Total War is great. Um, it really just depends on what you're into. But you'll find something anywhere. My, my big thing I say with all of it is take it all with a pinch of salt. Because remember, uh, and this is a, a big contention that pops up, and I, I, try to insert, I, I try not to insert myself into these arguments anymore, but <laughs> it's the idea of historical accuracy. You know? mm. And people complain. When Battlefield 1 came out and they saw that, Oh, you could you could play a guy with a peg leg or a woman with an eye patch or a or black man in the military. Oh, you know, people are freaking out because they I call it I've coined the term and it's on my blog. I call it hysterical accuracy. <laughs> because here, here are people who who think they know history. Yeah. And and they will insert, they will use it as a platform to insert their opinion about something, to assert yeah. their opinion. So no, there were never women in the military. This game is trash as a result. SJWs run amok, blah, blah, blah. There were never blacks in the military, etc. So, you know, I even made, I made a whole post where I took several of the, the, the best comments that came out of that battlefield thing. And I, I actually refuted each one of them. So mm. it's, it's never <laughs> as clear cut as, especially because a lot of the documentaries and things that you grow up seeing are from a particular narrative. Mm. So that's my point here. Take all yeah. documentaries, games, movies with a pinch of salt. They're never going to be 100% historically accurate because it's impossible to be 100% historically accurate. Mm. There's too much gray area. We don't know enough. We can't assert things 100%. But games, movies, documentaries are all trying to tell a story from a particular narrative. So it would be like complaining about Lord of the Rings because, um, because there are too many hobbits in it. When the whole story is mostly from the hobbit's perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, that's just what's going to be. So, so you know, I can't go into battlefield complaining that there's not enough uh, representation of the colonial forces um, because that's not the story they're trying to tell. Mm. I would like more representation. Uh, I really would, and hopefully there will be more. I would love an Assassin's Creed set in Africa. And whenever I bring this up online, people are like, ah, oh, there's no civilization in Africa. What are you talking about? So number one, immediately shows their ignorance, uh, probably yeah. a lot of healthy dose of racism as well in there. Uh, but, you know, it, there are so many civilizations, uh, ancient civilizations that an Assassin's Creed game in Africa could be set in. I only hope they do it one day. But uh, again, uh, fortunately, the gaming market is set in the Northern Hemisphere for the most part. Mm. So naturally, those are where the bigger games are going to sell. Uh, like Assassin's Creed yeah. Valhalla is coming up and people immediately complained because the trailer came out and there a Viking was running on the beach and he pulls out a hidden blade, you know, like shoots out like <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. stabs someone and people flip out. Ah, historical accuracy. Vikings never had that. And like, dude, you're looking at a game where there are literally alien artifacts and the Templars <laughs> and assassins have been fighting each other for years. For and you're complaining about yeah. that? Come now. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it was ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway. Talking about uh, narratives, I don't know whether this is actually a narrative thing. I, I think it's probably part um, of that conversation. But there's just like this this... There's so much media about World War Two when there's yeah. a whole other world war that you barely hear <laughs> anything about. And I think I've only played two games. Like 
I think Valiant Hearts and Battlefield One are the only yeah. World War One games that you get. I think it's got something to do with you know the U.S. not being that involved in World War One compared to two, and yeah. um, that's where uh, a lot so, of these games are being made and that type of thing. So, mm. so what's your outlook on that? Yeah. So uh, sorry. Before I do get into that, there's there's actually one more game I did want to mention, which uh, I I've, I forgot to, and it's a brilliant game. It's called uh, uh, This War of Mine. <laughs> sorry which is an absolutely incredible game set more or less in um, kind of Cold War era um, European country. And it's about the perspective of survivors of a civil war. So that is one of my favorite games of all time. If you want to know the effects of war on populace, play that game. That's just a side thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. The thing is that World War II is marketable because that's when we saw the most U.S. involvement in a conflict. But not mm. only that. World War II is more marketable because there was a great evil to defeat. World War I was just a tragedy. There was no great evil. Mm. Yeah, the, the Germans were trying to, trying to um, uh, take land, but honestly, the World War I was just a giant balls up from the start. Um, it was just, it, it was a mess. So mm. it's not, it's just sad. No one wants to market World War I because it's, it's too sad. That's why there are so few games and movies and things out. That being mm. said, there's a slow but steady rise of World War One interest. People are now getting sick of World War Two. World War One is becoming more interesting. We're seeing a few more movies coming out. We're seeing a few more games. It's going to be slow but sure, but there will be more about it. Um, World War Two, yeah, like I said, it's more marketable. There was the great evil Hitler, right? Nazi Germany, the Nazis, mm. the ultimate evil force. You want to punch a Nazi zombie in the face. You want to blow up Hitler. You want to whatever. Um, and also had some really, because it's where we saw a huge leap in innovation in terms of military technology. So we have all those crazy hidden um, weapons of the Nazis, you know, moon rockets and all that crazy stuff. So there's tons that can be unpacked from World War II. Uh, and I mean, there's even the occult wings of the Nazis. You know, they were trying to find mm. ancient artifacts. You know, yeah. it's, it's just, it's crazy. It was, and yeah. so if that's, you know, if you were looking for a war to market and just leech tons of content from, World War II is it. And especially if you are the US and you have a narrative that you won World War II and that you came and saved the allies and beat back the evil Nazis all by yourself, rah, rah, USA, USA, then that's the war that you go with. So I don't think we're ever going to not see a World War II game. And I don't think we're ever not going to see America portrayed as the hero. And don't get me wrong. The Americans did amazing work in World War II. If it wasn't for them, a lot of things would have been very different. Although I still think uh, the Germans would have lost just based on the offensive from the Russians and from their own collapsing economy. Yeah. But the Americans really pushed forward there. And there were some incredible and brave people, amazing strategies. Um, I will never undersell how important they were to the war and what they did. But I think that they oversell um, their role, especially because most World War II movies, you only see American troops and the occasional British troop, whereas yeah. it was far more of a mix and even sometimes more British and French troops and American troops, depending. Mm. But, um, and even other, other places like, you know, you had, uh, you had um, Norwegian troops and, um, you know, the colonies and all of that. So um, I think that the problem is even Band of Brothers, you get a very sanitized view of, or very whitewashed view of, of uh, World War II through that. Um, and the games especially. And of course, the game studios are made in... Look, the reason why half the Avengers movies are set in New York is because um, that's where you're going to get... Uh, America's where you're going to get a big portion of your sales. 
So it makes sense. You know, mm. uh, Warner Brothers isn't going to put out an epic, huge movie about a colonial soldier in Zimbabwe who never leaves Zimbabwe. You know what I mean? He's going to mm. stay there. So uh, that being said, every now and again, you do get a breakout movie that is about someone or something in a different place. And, it, you know, um, it yeah. just depends. So I can only hope that the more interest gets out there, the more we'll see new narratives. And um, and we're seeing a lot of historians, a lot of academics. Um, again, my my significant other is one of those who's um, studying colonial soldiers, specifically people of color from South Africa who fought in uh, World War II. Um, so we're seeing some incredible work coming out of the academic circles. And once those start to filter into the public consciousness, we'll see some more uh, more rise in uh, in interest, I think. I think we had a pretty um, interesting, insightful chat so far. It's probably probably could go on for hours about this type of yeah, stuff. Easily, uh, but I think we'll end on this, on this one thing. Like what, like what type? Okay, let's put it this way. Like what historical item would you like to be discovered right now um, that you you would be like so happy if they went and found this somewhere? Oh, discovered. Um, hmm. Let's see. I mean, I can tell you something that I've always wanted in my personal collection, which has already been found. Um, but it is the, it's called the Geographia Cosmographia, which was, uh, made by Ptolemy back in hundred AD. Ooh, and geez. basically it's, yeah. it's this book that's just, uh, maps. I love maps. I'm very keen on maps. Yeah. I can, can tell I've got things like that going yeah, on. Yeah. And, um, I love, I love how people viewed the world back then. And, you know, so that for me would be something I would kill to have in my collection. I think that book went for, what was it? Uh, I think something like 31 or $3.1 million um, to collectors. So I can only hope I can afford one of those one day, but I think, I think what I would, I would love, um, so even though I study modern history, I have a bit of a love affair with ancient history. I love the period where humans were first really eking out their existence in um, in in Africa, in in Europe, when we were basically encountering the Neanderthals for the first time. Um, so I love that that era, and I love learning about that. Um, just as a side thing. So I think something I would love, we don't know much about it because there's so little preserved from that time. You know, the, mm. the stone tools they used may have shattered. The The wooden tools they've used would have, would have degraded. Um, they left no art or, or history behind besides what was mm. painted on walls. Yeah, yeah. I would love for something to be found, a record of some kind from that era, whether it's a rolled up sheepskin that just has like scribblings on it or something something that gives us a, a proper insight into how people thought and felt at that time, even if it's just a snapshot of some, you know, Neanderthals in France, something like that. Um, and if I come a bit further out, like uh, my ancestry is Viking history, uh, Viking, and I, I love the Viking histories, the Norse. We actually, a lot of people, so here's a, a piece of um, pop culture information. Uh, most people don't realize that we actually know almost nothing about the actual Vikings. What we do know comes from Christian monk scholars 300 mm. years later yeah. because the Vikings didn't really keep proper records. You know, we have the occasional record, yeah. but not really much. We have poetic edders. We have things carved on rocks. We don't have much, though, in the way of, of proper historical records. And th- what was written about them from these monks' perspectives was mostly negative because, obviously, you know, these were people who had pillaged them and stolen and killed and robbed. Mm. So we don't have much in the way. So I would love 
some kind of something to be unearthed. Again, you know, being a historian, I want a record. I want an archive. I want something. (laughs) But I want a proper document written from their perspective that uh, explains their culture, explains their beliefs, explains things about them. Even just you know, translate some runes for us. Something yeah. um, that would be that would be, yeah. I think, the things I would I would love to have. Yeah. And as yeah. you can tell, they're all book related. I'm a huge bookophile. <laughs> I don't have it here, but in my my prize possessions in my household, um, I have a couple of artifacts I picked up um, from the years. Like I have World War One aviation goggles. Mm-hmm. I have um, I have a tank eyepiece from a Soviet uh, tank, and um, I have a. I have a collection of old books. I think my oldest is about 200 years old. Um, I have a first edition, Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth. I have uh, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I have an original edition of Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, things like that. I love collecting old books. And I really want to... I also have a collection. It's called um, South African Forces in France. So South Africans sent a a significant contingent to um, France in World War um, II. They fought in Delville Wood. And this book, first edition as well, a first-hand account of their experiences there. Um, so again, one of my prized positions. But That's yeah, so cool. books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bibliophile maximum. Mm-hmm. Big time. All right. So, and with that, Garrett, I think it's time for us to pack up this camp and head mm-hmm. off back to our respective labs and or fancy worlds. But first, Definitely. Garrett, why don't you let our fellow explorers know where they can find you and your work on the internet? Yes, wonderful. So you can find me on Twitter at lofi, L-O-F-I underscore historian. So lofi underscore historian. Uh, You can also find me on uh, Facebook under either, again, lofi historian or uh, the citizen historian. Um, Oh, sorry. No, on Facebook, it's just citizen historian. My website is thecitizenhistorian.com. Um, I don't use Facebook all that much these days. So if you want to find updates from me, your best bet is Twitter. And my website at the moment has some great articles on it and it shows, showcases my research. So if you want to take a look, you can, it is also currently on pause while I'm uh, completing the PhD, but as soon as I'm done with it, the website's going to pick up again. Uh, and eventually we'll be launching a YouTube channel. So if you really want to interact with me, Twitter, uh, my main website. And of course you can find me on Twitch also at LoFi Historian. Cool. Thank you so much, Gareth, for joining me today. I think uh, it's been a really fun chat and thank you mm. to the listeners for listening and sparing your time. Hope you had fun learning with us today. Do keep safe, keep well, stay healthy, stay tuned and cheers. Bye. <laughs>